In a world full of anger, strife, and plagues, a constant struggle is battled out between good and evil, right and wrong. And for over seven years, the IndieCast is here to try to make you forget all of that. With interviews, pop culture talk, and the best in sexual innuendo. So sit back and relax as Chad, Zach, and Luna welcome you to the IndieCast. Exclusively on the Wrestling Nerds Radio Network. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the IndieCast. I am Zach Romero. Joining me here, as always, is my co-host uh, with the most, uh, Chad Allen. Chad, that's say from, hello to the nice people. That, that's from Beetlejuice. <laughs> so I've heard. So I've been told. Um, but uh, in addition to us uh, heckling one another, we have uh, once again pulled some strings. We've made some calls. And we have finally, long time overdue, a fantastic guest for you. We have the clown princess of the internet, the lead explorer in experimental outlaw folk, and quite frankly, the most goddamn talented person we've ever gotten to work with. Ladies and gentlemen, open your ears. It's Kate Nix. I don't even know how to respond to the amount of things that you just said. Like I am. I'm sorry. The Beetlejuice reference was a bit much in the beginning. I apologize. <laughs> I am so overwhelmed. Um, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I work really hard, and it means a lot to me when talented people notice that. Thank you. So, uh, Kate, this is your first time on the podcast. Although Please. we have crossed paths with Ophidian the Cobra, who Once you are uh, well acquainted yes. with. I am, in fact, Mrs. the Cobra. Yes. So, uh, to kind of go over some of the um, standard podcast questions that I uh, no doubt (laughs) that you're going to be hearing a lot since you're going on kind of a press tour. We like to call this section the lightning round. So Chad is going to be uh, running through some, some, uh, I guess, standard questions that we'll get very bored with. And so you answer them as as in-depth or as uh, shallowly as you would like. So Chad, please take it away. Uh, excellent, thank you, sir. So uh, we will go with kind of the uh, normally for for our wrestlers. It's who trained you and when did you debut? But obviously that doesn't quite fit today. So we're going to change it up a little bit. Who are your earliest uh, influences on your sound style? My earliest influence on my sound style, I would probably say uh, the two thousand and one Josie and the Pussycats comic book to movie adaptation. Okay, we're go- we're gonna have to cover more of that in a little bit. I, well, yeah, I was gonna say. I, um, but as far as like as far as like the thing that I wanted to be when I first started playing music, I was eleven when I started songwriting. So that was right around when that movie came out, and I uh, I wanted to be a rock star instantly. I knew within that moment I was like, this is it. I can defeat capitalism with music. We can keep that fight going too lately. Good gracious. Uh, question number two. What is your earliest uh, performance or uh, artist memory? My earliest artist memory. Okay. So when I was 14 years old, I played a coffee house at my high school where they, this was before I went to high school online. I am truly a child of the internet. I graduated from online high school in 2008. Um, and but before back before I became truly absorbed by the cybernet, um, I went to brick and mortar school, which is what you call it when you go to cyber school. And 
at my brick and mortar school, there was a coffee house. It was my freshman year. It was in springtime. And I performed songs off of my, what I call my first record. Um, it was, I like my mom bought me recording time for Christmas when I was a teenager. And I sang songs from my record, including the song called Me and My Atari that like was probably my hit from that time. My two hits from when I was 14 were Me and My Atari and Video Games and Porn. And Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, I wrote a song called Video Games and Porn when I was 14. Uh, and that's actually how I came out. Um, because the end of that song says, no wonder I like girls. Um, so yeah, I'm just, this says a lot about me as a person. It's just what I'm saying. <laughs> you, you cut through a lot of, uh, a lot of obstacles right away. You were like, let's just get this all done now and then yeah. we'll build from there. But yeah, my mom worked for a theater in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And one of the gentlemen who ran the theater had a recording studio in his basement and my mom bought recording time from him um for me for christmas when i was in my freshman year in high school and i remember um selling my record after my performance it was like the first time i'd ever sold music before and people were coming up to me and buying like my songs out of my hands they were little like slimline jewel cases with there you go with um, it was they, they were multicolor slimline jewel cases that were clear on the front, you know the kind I'm talking about, and they had the the rewritable CDs that were like white, and I signed them in the the same color sharpie that matched the jewel case, and I printed out little lyric sheets and I put them in with my album, and I sold them for two dollars a piece, and I ended up promoting them on the announcements because my boyfriend at the time worked on the announcements in the morning so they used my song on the announcements and then i wore a t-shirt that said buy my cd and then it had my name and the name of the record and that's how i sold albums at school so like that's sort of like my first venture into independent music publishing and performance is like that sort of moment and, in time. and quasi merchandising as well Yes. Like coordinating signature ink with jewel case is absolutely that's that's a that's a step above. And it was in that like Lisa Frank rainbow. So like when you saw all of them in the little basket I was carrying, it was like a little lime green plastic basket. And then it had this rainbow that was like magenta, orange, bright blue, lime green, purple, magenta. Or it was like very limited to Austin Powers, late 90s, 70s aesthetic, sort of. Yes, yes. It was very much that, like the, the pop punk version of that. I was going to say, there may, there may need to be a, uh, like a throwback release of, uh, of an upcoming album in a similar fashion. We may, that may be something that the fans may demand after hearing this. <laughs> There's, um, I made a video about it on YouTube back when I tried to do YouTube videos, be that never again. Um, mm -hmm. but I made a video about how, like the full story of how I started writing music and how I made the record and all that stuff. Amazing. I feel like video games and porn should be our, should be the theme song for the indie cast. I think we might need to work out. I think we may have to work out some, sign some documents, perhaps, you know, work on some, some contracts perhaps, but yeah, like who knows? It's, um, it's. 
genuinely like the music that I wrote when I was a teenager is far catchier than it has any right to be. <laughs> like I listen back on it and I'm like, you know what? Good job, Haley Jane. Like you really for being like, I did that by myself. My mom bought me the recording time, but like I had, I was the one who was like, I'm going to make the jewel cases. I'm going to do the shirt. I'm going to like, I organized this thing. I didn't think about it like that at the time, but looking back on it, I'm like, that's taking some initiative. That's, it really is. That's like, really doing something like for being 14 in high school in public high school. Like, God, that could have been, that could have gone so terribly. Like what if it wasn't good? And was like the early days of the internet and it had gotten out and I had been Rebecca Black or some shit. True. Yeah. I was going like... to say that. <laughs> but like I, like I said, the, the fact that you put the thought enough in to be like, no, these are going to coordinate and this is going to be a whole thing. I think takes it automatically just on the surface level, takes it from beyond like, like Rebecca Black. Like this isn't just like a, an expensive hobby that like, you know, uh, a stage mom is sort of just funneling money into like to put that level of thought and marketability marketability into it shows a different level of creativity. I wish I'd kept the shirt. <laughs> well, no, we may need to recreate the shirt. Like I said, you're, you're opening up a whole new slew of ideas for like, well, here's how we're marketing, you know, Honestly, future albums. Though, like, isn't that kind of what that this machine kills fascist photo that I did is True. it's just like the adult version of that. It's True. like, these are my ideas on my body, but now I'm old enough to be naked to get your attention. So <laughs> here they are. <laughs> All right, Jay, Both my body question? and my opinions. <laughs> here they are. Here they are. Here they are. You're welcome, the internet. The Kate Nick story. Well, I was going to say, if we're doing it that way, then the like parentheses... Rocky and Bullwinkle, like alternate title, has to come from the most recent episode of Lullaby Lounge, which is "Pay me fifty dollars and I'll cry." So, yeah, that's the parenthesis. It's like here they are, my emotion or my opinions, and you know my body. Here you go, internet. Parentheses. Also, if you pay me fifty dollars, you can watch me cry. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, next question, Chad. Uh, question number I think three is where I'm at. Oh, sorry. That's okay. You don't have to apologize in the least. We love it. Uh, what's your favorite cult movie? Mm. My favorite cult movie. Honestly, I can't think. It's this not. Okay, yeah. This is my favorite cult movie. I'll admit it. It's The Apple. Really? Absolutely. I don't know why I'm Hands so surprised down. by that. That that makes a lot of sense. Okay, have, so Zach How Have you Zach seen Romero. The Apple? Now, I've seen The Apple, but I've seen it, the Riff Tracks version. So I okay. watched Mike Nelson and uh, Bill Corbett and Kevin Murphy crack jokes about the Apple. But yes, okay. I have seen the Apple. Okay. It's... Okay, well, I, I have not, so somebody needs to fill me in on this one. I'll have to go the look Apple this one up. is a movie musical made by MGM. Let's start with that, okay? So yeah. think big budget. Think we're trying. Think we put <laughs> a lot of work to, into this, okay? It's a big budget musical. Made in the late 1970s. The, pl the plot of the movie is the book of Genesis. Okay. Except the apple is a record deal. And we're in the future. The future oh. of 1994. Of course. <laughs> Life is nothing but show business in 1994. And, 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 and also it sort of suggested that like during production, cocaine might have flowed like wine. 
Um, actually, apparently, the movie did so poorly that the director tried to commit suicide. Now that's Ooh. a sales. That's a sales note. Um, and it's it's wild. The the movie is it. God, it, you when you watch it, you look at it like I've seen this before because it's very clearly influenced a lot of media after it. Like you watch the Apple and you're like, oh, that looks like the whatever thing from another future or futuristic or spacey or like you see a lot of like fifth element and the costuming and the way that it's treated. Um, but everything about it is ham fisted and weird. Mm-hmm. And um, also God is a hippie and Satan is the leader of a record label, but that record label becomes a dystopian military as you do. Of course. But it's all very sparkly. Yes. And there's like <laughs> weird like uh, glitter triangles on people's foreheads. It's a whole thing. It's a whole oh, thing. It wow. looks it's so incredible to look at. You watch the first 45 minutes and you're just like they wanted this to be something big. They thought this was going to be the next Rocky Horror or something. Yes, that's like, exactly what I was going to connect it to. We're going to make a Rocky Horror. We're going to manufacture it. And it is incredible. You'll recognize two people in it. Um, one is a character actress whose name is escaping me right now. And the other one is Finola Hughes from Saturday Night Fever. Um, the Oh, God, it's just so incredible. And it's... um. There are elements of it that are being considered, utilized, changed, affected, included in upcoming projects. So wonderful. And I think the analogy of like it's a studio, a big studio trying to synthetically make Rocky Horror reminds me of like, imagine if it was like your mother's like homemade chicken cacciatore, but it's only made with like the pink mcdonald's chicken slime like right. that's mm-hmm. kind of like what it ends up being it's like well it's edible it's certainly edible but the it's songs, a little weird the songs are really incredibly catchy sometimes and then sometimes you're like <laughs> who wrote this sometimes you're like there is an obvious choice that could have been made here that would have made this a perfectly reasonable pop song and instead you took a hard left turn <laughs> I, I think like, we need to re-release this film with uh, Kate's like description slash write up on the back of the box of like the so the songs are very catchy except when they're not like that's that's an excellent sales pitch for that movie except for the part where there's a six minute choreographed sex scene bed dance with twenty five couples that continues on for so long that you're like who paid for this yeah, who the- there's definitely several times over you're like, okay, I get it. No, I get it though, and it just keeps going. I'm, I'm, I can tell you what I'm watching once we're done recording the show tonight. I'm gonna go <laughs> find greatest, this movie. Holy crap! The greatest sales pitch that's ever been. It's um, it's on um, it's on Amazon Prime for free. You're my hero because that's where I was gonna go look first. Okay, yeah, perfect. It, so. Actually, it's the only place it's available. You can't even pirate it. I've tried. Like it's. <laughs> 
it's nowhere that nobody knows they're they try to pretend this movie doesn't exist it's under two different titles and multiple different like digital distributions like they mgm is just like we don't know her i mean yeah this is like the Star Wars Christmas special for uh, for MGM. hundred percent. MGM, yeah. Chadley, uh, next question, Mike. Anyway, yeah. sorry for talking about the Apple for a hundred years. <laughs> no, again, you don't have to apologize. We love it. That, oh, sorry. That, I'm a like woman. I, said, I, I feel like I have to apologize for everything I say. Uh, next question for you. Uh, you do live in the Philadelphia area, I do believe. Uh, where's the best cheesesteak? Um, I probably say Tony Luke's. Like, if you're looking for authentic Philly cheesesteaks that aren't going to be packed with tourists and you get, like, that Philly cheesesteak experience, like, you're basically ignored. You just go and get some meat on some bread and then leave. Um, But it's hard to deny, like, a standard Wawa cheesesteak at, like, four in the morning after you've finished a project and nowhere else is open, and you're just like, you know what? I'm gonna get Wawa. It's time. I deserve it. Again, what a sales pitch for Wawa. I have a really bad feeling about a question (laughs) right now. That's all I'm I'm gonna say for now. We'll we'll save Trevin for the end there. Uh, last question of the lightning round, and the one we kind of end everything with, uh, Marvel or DC, and why? You know, I would have said Marvel probably at the beginning of this year, maybe last year. But then Doom Patrol came out. And it's the greatest superhero show ever. So Really? DC, yeah. I, for one, am very happy that Brendan Fraser is finally getting his flowers. He, I've always been a Brendan Fraser fan. I love Monkey Bone. I love him. And God, the visuals of Monkey Bone inspire me so much as an artist, just because I saw it a thousand times when I was, again, I went to cyber school. So when I was done my homework, which took me like 45 seconds, I would watch hours and hours of digital cable and Monkey Bone was always on the weird like comedy channels, so I watched yes. it like a hundred times with commercials. I was gonna say we uh, uh, another project that I'm a part of. Uh, we actually did like a whole review of Monkey Bone, and the kind of our theory was that the film itself is is definitely not perfect, but I think it gets a bad rap because of how many times it was on Comedy Central. Like yeah. Like just it, same thing with like Ghostbusters two. That movie is not horrendous, and so many other films rip it off, and yet it's slammed all the time because it was on Comedy Central a thousand times. I'm sorry, things are popular. Like, what are you going to be like? It's good. Yeah, I <laughs> but I think everybody gets sick of it. Is is the problem? Whether it's yeah. like, you know, they don't appreciate it enough. I don't know. <sighs> sometimes, Brandon, sometimes Brandon it gets. Say. Yes. But honestly, that whole gets overexposed. <laughs> maybe. the the way that Doom Patrol treats family, like family trauma and generational trauma and mental illness, and just it has such a good, um, it's a good show that follows antiheroes that is so utterly bizarre, and the cast is all clearly so committed and. It's very well edited. Like, I don't normally like dark superhero shows because I'm like, why make it dark? Like, do we have to? But Doom Patrol t- 
deals with very tough topics in a super interesting and it's like the um crap what was that what was the marvel one that had uh the english kid as the god it started with an l it was the marvel show that was like about the insane kid that oh yeah yeah yeah. what was that um it's one word crap it's Le- completely legion. legion yes it's like the legion of dc okay um, an interesting way to put that. And, it, but it's so much more interesting because the way that Legion portrays relationships is is so artistically weird that it it become the message of what they're trying to send. I think is sometimes super. It's too vague. Like, it won't pick a side, and maybe that's good about it. But Doom Patrol is, it's great. It's like the reason I care about DC right now. Again, I think that's an amazing sales pitch for, you know, whatever you would be watching DC shows. So, like, it's the sole reason I care about DC right now. <laughs> well, oh, so we finished go. the lightning round. Kate, you did amazing. Um, I'm great at harnessing lightning. Yes. Well, I mean, there you go. I'll add that to the uh, to the resume. Now, uh, one thing we we are a hard hitting uh, interview show. And so we, of course, did some deep dives on your social media. Mm -hmm. And so we are putting you on the spot right now. Yeah. In your opinion, how exactly did Porgs change Star Wars forever? That thing exists because birds don't give a fuck about your life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. That's Uh, an excellent opening line for any kind of uh, middle school, um, you know, like end of the year project, like that is a perfect opening line. Birds do not care if you are shooting the most expensive movie that Disney ever bought. They're just doing bird stuff, man. And because of that, humans had to spend thousands of hours drawing little penguin faces or whatever, rabbit faces on them because birds just don't care. They're going to be birds. I just love that so much. I love that we humans try to control so much of the universe, right? We desperately want to control everything about like our temperature. That's why air conditioning exists and we can change the volume of everything we own. And you can have settings on your phone that do this, that, and the other thing. You can completely customize your life, but birds do not care. Birds are going to yell. Birds are going to do what birds are going to do. And I think it's just a true testament to the sort of like, I don't know. Sometimes things are just going to happen. And, and a certain rebellious nature of nature. Yeah, it's going to rebel. It, it's shit's going to light on fire. There's going to be a global pandemic. You have absolutely no idea what's going to happen or what's going to make you spend thousands of hours drawing little rabbit faces on puffins because they don't care. They just want to meet Mark Hamill and live their lives. <laughs> Which honestly, who doesn't? That's yeah. a lot of people's goals. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Chad, I, I know your ears perked up at the, uh, the discussion or mention of the uh, great influence of the Josie and the Pussycats live action film. So, well, I, uh, I get, and she had kind of explained a little bit, but I, I guess I would love to know a little bit more exactly of like 
what was it? What was it about the jo- the Josie and the Pussycats movie, which I think you may have been one of the people that actually went and saw it, um, that uh, that that kind of that caught your eye. I mean, I'm I guess God, I'm feeling so old right now because I remember when the you know I I remember at least seeing replays when the cartoon was out. So, uh, but what was it about the the movie that made you that that enamored you with it? Well, first of all, the the design for that movie was perfectly aimed at my demographic. Like I was I already told you about like my limited to kind of like punk rock limited to aesthetic thing that I had going true, on with me. True. Um, and that movie looked like that. Like the, the design of that movie was sort of futuristic. It, it was slight, it was slightly futuristic because I'm realizing looking back that the actual nature of that film is very dystopian. And it was my first access of like dystopian futuristic storytelling and it was the first time i understood satire like Mm. it was the first time i watched something and i understood that the boy band on screen was making fun of the boy bands that i listened to when i was eight or nine and i felt like i was in on the joke from the beginning and because of that at like 11 or 12 it felt so grown up like understanding like oh it's funny because the boy band's singing about being gay like like the the when like they're marketed to young girls as as sex symbols and like this whole situation and it's it it was the first time i i don't know it i just felt included in what was happening i felt like i was allowed to access this like adult humor and it has a, a very interesting breakdown, like the first sort of inklings of that punk rock ideology of like rebelling against the system and how the system can control you outside of your, like without your knowledge and that the system is not set up so that you can succeed. And it did all of that in this beautiful, sparkly early 2000s way and the music was sung by like the leader of letters to Cleo. So it was, the music was incredible. It was, it was written by the gentleman from fountains of Wayne who recently passed away. Um, also some of the of some of the counting, one of the counting crows um, wrote on the record and it was produced by Babyface Edmonds. So it has this like super team, like superhuman team of pop writers writing music for a film that was aimed exactly at my age when I had start when I was listening to pop music, but it was going into this sort of more riot punk rock pop punk energy. And it was just exactly what I needed to hear when I was coming of age. And the the anti-capitalist message behind it, I think, resonated with me wholly. And it also sort of made me understand. I don't know. There were just so many concepts in it that I was introduced to as a young child that it felt like it was really mine. And I just love it. it it's it's so clever. I, I at the screenwriter all the time on Twitter and he responds to me sometimes and it's the best. Um, because I, I just, that movie is, it is the spark that lit the flame. Wow. Again, there needs to be like a re-release of that film so that like, that can be on the cover somewhere. Now, I am by to... no means the only person who feels that way either. Josie and the Pussycats has a strong 
group of women in music who were coming of age around that time who are musicians because of that movie. Like, it's not a movement, but I've met more than a few. Spectacular. Now, to sort of jump to a similar idea, um, recently you did a cover of uh, an Ice-T song from the Tank Girl soundtrack, yes. uh, which has an amazing music video to go with it, by the way. Um, so, with that in mind, is there another underrated 90s flick that you feel needs needs to have a spotlight on it? Needs to have, like, uh, another look by the general public and pop culture? Because I feel like Tank Girl doesn't get the respect that it deserves. I think Tank Girl gets this respect more... I think Tango gets the respect that it deserves, but it doesn't get, but it has so many people saying that it doesn't get the respect that it deserves. Like, I feel like. <laughs> I'm I a drone. Like, I'm, in, I'm with the no, cult. No, it's, it's not your fault. I think there's this idea. I think that's, it was kind not that it's how it was marketed, but that's kind of the, um, the mythology around that movie, right? Like the mythology around that movie is that Jamie Hewitt didn't like, didn't really like it. Like there was a lot of arguments behind the scenes about what, what it should be and how it should be made. But I went, I've read the tank girl comics because of that movie. And I honestly, like the movie made it understandable to me. There was a plot. When I read the tank girl comics, I'm just like, what is going on here? Mm. Um, But as far as another underrated nineties movie, Man, um, does the apple count? Because it is about the future in 1994. <laughs> I feel like you're, it's going to have to count whether we wanted to or not. I feel like that's just <laughs> no, how I'm it's going to, to be. I would say probably maybe, probably maybe, God, what a fucking group of words. Um, <laughs> probably maybe could be, could might be. be. My first inkling is to say Ever After with Drew Barrymore. Okay. Um, because I love that film, and her accent is terrible, but it doesn't matter because <laughs> Drew Barrymore is so enchanting to watch, and Angelica Houston in in historical garb, like what more excuse could you have to like? Oh, I'm sorry, you didn't want to see Angelica Houston in beautiful Renaissance era costumes, acting in circles around all these people, looking like a supermodel. I, what? I, why? There's a scene where. Drew Barrymore picks up do Gray Scott and carries him away from a band of of um of bandits or something. Like why not? It's full of historical inaccuracies, but Okay, yes, but when did that ever stop anybody from enjoying a film? Yeah, it's Cinderella, who cares, right? So I, I'm interested based off you so you've done an uh, an ice tea cover, which which I I love. It's a great song too, by the way. Uh, I completely agree with Zach on that. Um, what kind of goes into you deciding which songs you're gonna you're gonna cover? Is there anything in particular you're looking for, or just kind of what catches your ear? What is there anything? Tell us a little bit about kind of what goes into the idea of what what you decide to uh, to pick out. Well, I think it depends on like how my voice feels when I sing it a little bit. Like if I enjoy <clears throat> speaking of which. <laughs> Um, I think it goes, it's about how I feel when I sing it. If I feel like I want to sing it over and over again enough to record it, that's sort of what goes into making recorded covers. Or if it's something that 
back when I was performing live, back before I um, my chronic illness kind of made me change my my game a little bit. Um, back when I was doing when I was gigging, it would be kind of based on what I thought would get a good crowd response. I like I do covers that are a little bit unexpected, um, but I've also realized that some songs are just catchy and you want to sing them. Like fell in love with a girl I just covered because. I, I got, it got stuck in my head and I wanted to cover it. Same with Cheap Thrills. Um, and that's when I was doing YouTube videos every week. So I was like, well, if I'm doing one of these every week, I'm just going to cover some songs that I think are decent. Um, but the songs that like, like Big Gun, I cover because I think it's an unexpected cover for me. Like you wouldn't expect me to do a nice tea song because I'm an I'm a country folk artist. Um, but also I think that's a really underrated Ice T song. I, I love his flow in that song and <clears throat> it was one of the first raps I ever learned. So I think it just I just have to like the song enough to sing it multiple times in a row. Or I have to like the song enough I have to like people's reaction enough when I sing it. And speaking of reactions on uh, the uh, Twitch stream that uh, that that Kate runs, the Lullaby Lounge, she, you do get a lot of feedback right then and there from people. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that you brought up on the most recent episode, because I do my damn research on this show, um, is something. And you you okay? So let's talk about the Lullaby Lounge for a moment. So okay. that is that is a variety <laughs> show that you've been putting on for four seasons now. We're we're going into season four here. Yes, we just started um, season four. It's music, it's storytelling, it's somewhat sometimes kind of skits and 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 Carol Burnett sort of like fun, lighthearted adventures. Um, but there's also a very real sincerity um, to not only the project in general, but there are definitely moments of just absolute realness like and and me not i i I don't want to insult that's what i'm trying to avoid here but bottom line is there are elements that on paper you would go well as a marketable thing you should not connect this much with your fans or let the fans in this much and you break down that every time like you really are upfront and brutally honest sometimes about things that you're dealing with or the the thought process of an artist um, so let, let me give you the floor a little bit to talk about Lullaby Lounge. And then I want to ask something very specific that you were very, very upfront and honest about on the most recent episode. So what have I missed about pitching the shit out of, uh, Lullaby Lounge? Um, first of all, thank you so much for the comparison to Carol Burnett, Carol Burnett. It is actually not the first time I've gotten it. And every time I'm just like, I, um, the it's hearing things like that are the reason why I can keep going because obviously I'm an artist and when something's three quarters of the way done I hate it because it doesn't look like what I want to and I can't figure out how to fix it um before I figure out how to fix it so thank you so much for that uh definitely encouragement to keep going um the lullaby lounge is well it started as I just wanted to show up for my fans, you know? It's hard for me to make regular content in a way where I have to, like, sit down and edit things for multiple hours. Like, I'm chronically ill, and 
the realistic aspect of my life is that I have a very limited amount of energy to use in a day and how I use it has to be very specific. And um, I wanted to be able to be present more in people's lives uh, because I felt like I hadn't been. So I started live streaming every week. Um, and what I was capable of live streaming every week wasn't good enough. It was me talking to a camera with not like it looked like any other live stream, you know, like there's a cam. It's me putting my phone up. I'm on Facebook Live. Right. Playing songs, talking. And because I have fans in the UK who are vocal enough on my page that I felt like doing something to make them feel included because they couldn't be at the show at the time when I would perform it. I started doing these replays on the Facebook watch thing and the replays, I had to watch my own performances and I hated it because I was watching myself and I, I, I saw every time I stuttered and I missed things and because I wasn't learning songs beforehand and all this stuff. And I got to a point where I was wearing out my voice and streaming multiple times a week and just, I exhausted myself. So I stopped and I was like, I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to do this in seven weeks, seasons, and then have time off so that I can relax and do the things that aren't this show. Because in order to make a show as good as I want to make it, I can only have certain, I can only do it, at, I can't do it every week, forever, indefinitely, like, till the end of time. I will burn out and I don't want to die early. <laughs> um, <laughs> Again, that's, I mean, that's. That as could, again, be another name of an album or a book. Who is ex as someone who is extremely suicidal, being able to say that is insane, first of all. No, like, I, kudos. Like, like I, it took kudos. a long time to get here. Um, so because of that, I had to figure it out and a way to continue making the work that I wanted to make at the level that I wanted to make it. Because I wanted to make something I didn't hate watching. And in order to do that, I had to include video segments and skits and comedy and storytelling and... Um, the, uh, the truth of, of the connection, which is that we exist in a very unique space online, which is that we're not talking to each other in a public place. We're not, we're not bound by the same social norms because the norm for this hasn't been created yet. Right. Like mm. we're, go we're, both, we're, we're going into new territory as far as what digital connection means in our lives. And I want to show that you can connect with people in a powerful way and have never met them. And they can be a huge part of your life and they can be present with you and encourage you. And this is real life. This right now, me talking to you is real life. You're really sitting there making this time for me. And I'm really sitting here making this time for you. And whoever is listening to this is really living their life, making time making like they're spending their time on us. They're choosing to spend their time with on us. And the, the least I can do is make it enjoyable time to spend. So that's what the lullaby lounge is doing my best to decorate the time of people who want to spend time with me. That's quite the mission statement. Now, specific now i've been watching uh, we, you know, Luna and I've both been watching for a while and, and you just started season four. Um, and so there was, there was a project that you mentioned kind of venturing out on and it was, I, I, unfortunately I don't have the name of it right here in front of me, but basically it was 
this sort of, uh, as you put it, like musical dating app uh, with okay. Spotify, where you were um, paying a fee and you were submitting uh, some music to potentially, I think if I caught it right, was like the potential to get on the radar of like influencers and people who have playlists that are followed by a lot of people, as you put, like auditioning to be in an important section of Spotify. Mm-hmm. Well, and important is relative because everyone believes themselves an influencer. I'm auditioning to be on Spotify playlists of people with like the same amount of Instagram followers as me. Right. Um, <laughs> now, again, if you want to hear the full synopsis and the very sincere, real, um, unabashed, like frankness of her discussion of what this experience has been like, please go back and watch that episode of Lullaby Lounge. But I just needed to discuss and just put it out in the open that how you described this and this process and and the feedback and all that um, literally sounded like hell. If I had like, like Dante and the divine comedy ain't got shit on what you were describing, which was there. You submit this to Spotify. They throw it at quote unquote influencers. If they, enjoy it enough they'll add it to the playlist hooray mission accomplished if they don't like it not only is it not on a playlist but they have to give you like direct feedback as to why it didn't make the cut and i was like mm-hmm. literally i i had like ptsd flashbacks to uh like poetry classes i took in in school and having like the direct feedback of kids who don't understand what i was trying to like there's a lot of swear words in this poem, Zach. I don't like it. And I'm like, I wish I wasn't here. I uh-huh. wish I was on fire right now. This is awful. Yeah. Um, so not so much a question as more of like, that sounds like hell. Yep. And that's incredible that you've made it through it. Like that holy shit. I've been getting emails uh, all week about how mediocre and di- uh, and boring and... Uh, uh basic my music is um it's been a lot does the does the program also ask for your home address so these people can just show up at your door and just knock shit out of your hands and just like kick you in the throat in the morning when you're trying to wake up because i feel like that's just along the same lines here of what they're covering well here's the thing i chose to get the feedback because i Am a nosy, and <laughs> uh, you. There's an option where you can say I don't care. You can say don't say anything to me. But because I'm me, I'm like, well, why didn't they take it? And the answer is because people who I don't know, I. I mean, because everyone's entitled to their opinion, right? Like, of course, it absolutely is those things for them. It's not what they're looking for because when they expected to click on my song, they thought of something else. Like, maybe I chose the wrong genre or whatever to send things out to because, like, you can pick these influencers by genre and by and see what their influence is and how many listeners their playlists have. And there's all these stats that you can check to see if this person's going to be the right fit for you. And the problem could be that I don't know what fucking genre my songs are in because True. I mean, it's like, this is going to 
let me suck my own dick here for a second. <laughs> yes. Pardon me. Might I suck <laughs> my own dick for a second? What genre is David Bowie? Okay. Yep. Wow. Right to the hilt on the first try. All right. Well, that's fair. Um, you know what I mean? I'm just a biromantic, asexual person trying to make sounds that sound like how I feel man and sometimes that's computer noises and sometimes that's a full-on country western band and i think that to limit myself by genre is to limit myself to a palette of of sounds that it can doesn't express the full truth of my meaning holy shit that's the little muscle in your back with the heaviness of those words like that's <laughs> I mean, but, like, but you're but not my, wrong. I mean, and I feel that's like my I feel job, like that's you know, like as a musician, I think as an entertainer, because I consider myself like I consider myself a a package deal, right? I'm not just a singer songwriter. I'm also the costumer. I'm also the video mm-hmm. editor. I'm also the producer. I'm also the person who makes the graphics. I'm also the person who does everything. I'm it. It's me. I am the producer of things. I made all of it myself. And when you have mentality. I want my job is to make the experience feel like how I feel. Like I think music is the most honest form of communication. And because there's some you, there's words and you can hear a tone of words and there's a melody to language, but because of pop culture, because of all the things that we've watched, the things this podcast is about, the ways that we've heard music in society, right? The way we've seen it used in film, there's a language of melody. There's a sad melody and a happy melody. And a you you feel differently when you hear an orchestra hit than when you hear a synthesizer, right? True. If I put those things together, I think I get closest to expressing the true meaning of what I want to say. If I use language to the extent that I know how to use it and metaphor, and I paint with the right colors then you'll understand how I feel. Before we get into, I guess, the next iteration of our IndieCast TED Talk series, uh, where Kate is going to uh, really get into some amazing detail about making your own waves and not waiting for some innocuous big thing to come sweep you up and, and make you a big deal, uh, we're going we're gonna to end this first part here. So make sure you're following uh, Closet Champion on Patreon if you're not already. That is Kate and Ophidian's uh, gear making and um, clothing making and just a craft unbelievable uh, program that you can follow along and and help uh, throw money at. As well as make sure you're tuning in to the Lullaby Lounge, which is Kate Nix's uh, unbelievable internet variety show and uh, and and uh, solo concert. Um, we're currently in the fourth season and you can watch it every Tuesday at eight o'clock on, uh, Twitch. It streams uh, live on Kate Nix's Twitch channel. Um, so of course, until next week where we, uh, continue this amazing interview, I am Zach Romero on behalf of Chad Allen. Thank you all for listening to the IndieCast. As we always say, deuces. Well, hope I don't poop today.
Hercules Mulligan. A jump scare is the Canadian destroyer of horror films. Pardon me. Might I suck my own dick for a second? I'm ready to greet the day, you fucker. <laughs> Every single one of you guys has made a horrible decision. <laughs> it's that dirty-ass Meryl Streep. We are. We're touching wieners. Not touching wieners good. professionally. Ric Flair said fuck a six-pack, and he never lost an ounce of pussy. What I am is a big, queer, stone-cold Steve Austin. Birds don't give a fuck about your life.